What do you do to help yourself endure hardship, be it a stressful job or with an illness or a difficult person or some discouragement in your ministry? Some people endure by just gritting their teeth and working harder. Others do it by thinking of someone in a worse situation to others. Others uh, have hope. Uh, think of how good it'll be when the end or the destination is reached. That's how the Bible writers often deal with persecution, remind us of the eternal life and, and hang on. Others, of course, endure through the use of substances, and some of those are legal and good, like the pain medication described, uh, prescribed by your doctor. For others, though, it'll be, say, alcohol for short-term distraction. One of the things you can say about all those approaches to enduring difficult hardship is that they rely on you, they, they rely on your strength, which is a problem when you're not very strong or feeling so. In 2 Corinthians, Paul has been describing his fragile jar of clay existence. And today, his extremely trying ministry experiences, yet he doesn't give up. I want to show you Paul's insight into how to endure in the face of obstacles, difficulties, health problems. There's two steps. The first one is to face your weaknesses and boast in the Lord. And secondly to ask God to rest his power on you. So the first one, face your weaknesses. Can I remind you from last week where we are in the book of 2 Corinthians? The Corinthians are in danger of losing their salvation if they accept the teaching of a new group of super apostles who've come to Corinth while Paul is away. These people are probably urging the Gentile Corinthians to adopt more Jewish practices so much so that they'll stop relying totally on Christ and their relationship and acceptance by God through him. And one of the strategies the super apostles are using as they infiltrate the Corinthians is to talk up themselves and talk Paul down. They've criticised Paul's unimpressive speaking style and that he refused to be paid for his work at Corinth. They're questioning if he really has genuine apostle credentials. Now, last week we saw that in response, Paul stepped away from the biblical principle that you should only boast in the Lord, not about yourself. And Paul began to engage in boasting, in comparing himself with the super apostles. And Paul, remember, he really hated doing it, but he concluded that he needed to do it because the Corinthians living in a Greek wealthy city in that culture, boasting is what you do. It's very different to our Western culture in those days. It's boasting was approved of. It's what you do. So Paul had to get out of his comfort zone because their salvation, their very salvation was at stake if they would reject him and his message. So today, where we pick up our reading in chapter 11 at verse 16, Paul rolls into what he considers foolish boasting. So verse 16, Let no one take me for a fool, but if you do, tolerate me just as you would a fool, so I may do a little boasting. In this self-confident boasting, I'm not talking as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many are boasting in the way the world does, I too will boast. And we see him begin to do that there where he makes in 22 a direct comparison with the super apostles. 
His Jewish credentials are as good as theirs. Verse 22, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? Well, so am I. It's important that he sets out his Jewish credentials because they're proclaiming Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. But at this point, did you notice when uh, Angela was reading, a really big change comes on things. Paul really changes tact. And this is where we begin to see the first step to endurance in action. Verse 23 is another question and direct comparison with the super apostles. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I've worked much harder. And what, watch what happens now. Been imprisoned more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. And this is the beginning. And from this point on, all the way through to verse 33, Paul's going to be listing experiences he's had where he hasn't looked impressive, he hasn't looked strong, he hasn't looked in control. In fact, you'd think nothing of what Paul's about to say is, is, is something to boast about. He refers to them all in verse 30 as the things that show my weakness. It must have been really stunning for the Corinthians when they got this letter. At first, it looks like he's doing what happens in their culture. He's rolling into direct comparison with the opponents, the super apostles. But suddenly, he's displaying the things you would never put in your CV. Imagine going for a job and putting in all the things where you failed in your previous job. These are the insults and persecutions due to brutal corporal punishment, the the shipwreck failures and other dangers at the hands of human and non-human foes, the hardships due to working without sleep, shelter, food and warmth. And then he gets down in verse 28, his anxiety for all the churches he's founded when he knows they're weak and struggling with sin or faith and he can't be there to help them As your minister, I really feel verse 28. I can really relate to Paul, and I only have one church to worry about. He has all these churches all around the Mediterranean to be anxious about. Paul's life isn't easy. You see his summary there, though, in verse 30. If I must boast, I'll boast of the things that show my weakness. Now, you might be reading Paul's list and be thinking, I don't see this as weakness, Paul. You're a hero to keep going through this. But that's the point. The fact that he has to continually struggle and suffer is proof that he's not superhuman, but as he described himself back in chapter 4, he's a jar of clay. He's a, a poor clay pot. And notice what Paul's doing here. He's facing his weaknesses. He's not just trying to overlook them or minimise them, or pretend they're not there and grit his teeth and get through. He's facing them. And he has a good model in terms of facing them because he's a servant of the Lord Jesus. As a servant of Jesus, shouldn't he expect to follow in the footsteps of his master, follow in the footsteps of Christ who suffered rejection, beatings, floggings, prison, and then execution on the cross? Christ did all that to serve Paul and us. It was crucial for our salvation that he suffer for our sins on the cross. And 
Paul knows there's no shame in being upfront with your weaknesses and failings. He's going to go on in a moment to show how facing his weaknesses is crucial to endurance. But before we see that, I want to show you a little bit more of his weaknesses that he has at the end of chapter 11. In verse 31, Paul relates how he escaped arrest in Damascus by being lowered in a laundry basket from a window. Bruce, can I have the next slide, please? For a Roman soldier, a very high honour was to receive the corona moralis. And that was a crown made of gold and decorated like the turrets of a city. And so it also got called the ward crown. And it was awarded to the first soldier to climb the wall of a besieged city and successfully place his army's flag or standard on it. I wonder if Paul has that in mind here where he boasts of exactly the opposite, not the crowning glory of being the first over the wall. He's the one lowered down the wall as a fugitive. It's not a prestigious or triumphant way to leave Damascus. And so Paul is boasting about his weaknesses. And as he does that, he now moves away from weak ministry experiences to something much more personal. He moves away to visions and revelations from the Lord. Now, at this point, uh, you probably think, well, that's something impressive. And again, it seems that the super apostles made something of their super spiritual experiences. And it looks like Paul's going to do that to match them, as it were. Look at verse 1 of chapter 12. I must go on boasting. Although there's nothing to be gained, I'll go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. And in the first few verses after that, he describes this amazing vision involving a man being somehow transported to heaven and hearing inexpressible heavenly things that no one is permitted to tell. That's pretty amazing. And as you read it, it's clear that this, is, this man is actually Paul. So it's curious, isn't it, that he talks about himself in the third person. I know a man. I guess it's because having such a vision is something you might boast about if you think like these super apostles, but there's no way Paul wants to be like them. So verse 5 of chapter 12, I will boast about a man like that, but I'll not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast... I'd not be a fool because I'd be speaking the truth, but I refrain so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Paul's acknowledging he could boast about special experiences like vision, like the visions, but he's not going to because his desire is to boast in the Lord not about himself. He doesn't want people to think too highly of him. He wants them to think highly of the Lord. Paul's whole ministry is about pointing people to the Lord Jesus and to put their faith and serve him. He's not about collecting a group of admirers for himself, unlike these people in Corinth. I reckon we can all learn at this point. Let's pause and think about the first step to enduring difficulties in life. So far from Paul's example, we've seen whatever our strengths 
resources or abilities, we all have them, but we also all have weaknesses, failings and struggles. And you notice the way Paul is upfront about them. I want to ask you, are you honest to yourselves about your failings and your weaknesses, even if you might seek to hide them from others? That's the first step, is being honest about our failings and our weaknesses and our struggles, not trying to minimise them. You know, there's a side benefit to this acknowledging our weaknesses as well. If we'll boast in the Lord and the privilege of knowing him and not our achievements or our wisdom or our abilities or our power or our wealth or the people of influence we know, there's going to be a positive impact of that on our relationships. And what will that be? Well, it should mean that we're more humble, shouldn't it? It should mean the way we relate to others, we're more humble in our relationships. If we lead other people in our workplace, we can acknowledge that we don't have all the ideas or the skills and we can encourage and welcome others' input. If we're on a team for one of the ministries at church, we can appreciate the input of others in the team. In our families, we can be encouraging and express our thanks to other members who do things or contribute things we can't. That's step one, is to face up to our weaknesses and our struggles and our difficulties. Just doing step one without step two, though, will not help you to endure life's difficult. It's just going to make you feel depressed. So let's go on to step two. Step two is an attempt to describe what Paul models in the last next few verses, 7 to 10 of chapter 12, and I've called it, Ask God to Rest His Power on You. We saw in verse 6 that Paul avoided taking up boasting about his amazing vision experiences. And if that isn't enough, Paul now relates his understanding that it's the Lord's will for him not to boast of himself. Have a look at the second half of verse 7. Chapter 12. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Notice it's the Lord's work here to help Paul not to boast about his amazing spiritual experience. The Lord has sent, has allowed Satan to give him this thorn in the flesh. With an experience like that amazing vision, there was always the risk that Paul could convince himself that he was somehow deserving of it because he was such an outstanding Christian or minister. Instead, he should see it, the vision, as a gift of God and boast in the kindness of God in giving it to him. So the Lord takes this fascinating initiative to allow Satan to give Paul this thorn in the flesh. The idea of God allowing Satan to act is all through the Bible. Now, Satan isn't equal to God in power. Satan's been defeated by Christ's death and resurrection. But until Christ returns, Satan continues to have a level of freedom to tempt people and seek to frustrate Christ's work. Though Satan still acts within the limits set by God. 
We do well not to attribute any and every bad thing to Satan's direct action. That is to give him more power than he has. Sometimes it's just your sin and sometimes it's just sinful people. But we can be certain of one thing, that whatever the situations, he will seek to exploit them, be they of his making or not, by tempting our faith in God's goodness. And so Paul is given this thorn in the flesh. Just when he might have been feeling like the super spiritual man, it reminds Paul of his mortality, his weakness and his dependence on God, which from his list of other struggles, you would think he already had. Nobody knows exactly, though, what the thorn in the flesh is. Hundreds of pages have been written in speculation. Is it persecution? Is it sexual temptation? Is it a speech defect? Is it a sight problem? Is it epilepsy? For the past few days, every waking moment of my day has been dulled by one or all of my three mouth ulcers. I thought I knew what the thorn in the flesh was. But, of course, mouth ulcers will go... And that was the problem for Paul. His thorn didn't go away. Have a look at verse 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. The Lord always answers our prayers, but sometimes with a no. In Paul's case, he actually gets an audible answer, which doesn't happen to me or most of us. But this answer, in this answer lies the key to step two to enduring life's difficulties. Verse 9, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Hear those words? My power is made perfect in weakness. That means the Lord's power becomes a reality in our lives in the midst of weakness. Paul experienced God's power to sustain and strengthen him as he lived with the thorn. And that taught Paul something about facing all the numerous struggles and challenges in his life. So the rest of verse 9, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Paul has discovered, Bruce, thanks, Paul has discovered that there is strength in weakness. When Paul is boasting about his weaknesses, acknowledging them to himself and others, if necessary, then he throws himself on God's mercy and he then experiences God's power to strengthen, to help, to aid, to clear obstacles, to improve and to sustain him. You want to experience God's power? Then be upfront about your weaknesses and your struggles and throw yourself on the Lord and you will experience his power. It involves acknowledging our struggles and being led to depend on the Lord's power, not ourselves. I must say that I haven't yet matured, though, to the level of Paul here in verse 10. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, hardships, persecutions and difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. 
I'm not yet ready to delight in our weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions and difficulties. But I'm encouraged, I'm encouraged to turn to the Lord and his power because as Paul says there, when I am weak, then I am strong. When I am weak and face up to it and turn to the Lord, then I am strong because the Lord uses his power and and helps me. One of the greatest struggles I find in my week is when I have to produce the sermon for you. I spend hours trying to understand the passage and then I spend more hours just trying to work out the application and some structure that will communicate clearly to you. And then I get to write. I really feel my weakness in these times. It drives me to prayer, asking God to help me understand and see what's the best application for you and for me. It's such a good feeling when the working out the structure step comes together and I'm ready to write. And so often I've had the experience of realising that it's at that point that God gives me, has given me the ideas and they've fallen into place. As you've experienced, of course, some weeks the product doesn't really show so well. At those times, it's probably because I've relied on myself. I haven't left enough time to be struggling and praying. I haven't prayed enough. It's interesting in the first chapter of 2 Corinthians, so we're in chapters 11 and 12, it's interesting that in the first chapter, Paul describes some of his struggles and weaknesses and then illustrates how it should lead us to pray for God's power. So I've got it on the, on the slides. We do not want you to be informed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We're under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we'd received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Next slide. He's delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he'll deliver us again. On him we've set our hope that he'll continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favour granted us in answer to the prayers of many. Go back to the first slide. Thank you. You see uh, what I've underlined at the bottom there, but this happened that we might not rely on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. Paul understands this deadly situation he faced in Asia was to lead him to get beyond his own resources, to not rely on himself and rely on God. Rely on God who raises the dead, who's so powerful that he raised Jesus from the dead. Do you notice the variation on our steps here though? What is it? What is it? It was more in the second slide, the second half of that passage from 2 Corinthians 1. What is it? I've been encouraging you to acknowledge your weaknesses and your struggles and turn to God in prayer. But what's the variation here? It's the prayers of others can also have that impact. Paul values the prayers of others to God on his behalf, that God will rest his power on his situation in answer to the prayers of others. Now we do that here at church all the time. We do it for the persecuted church, we do it for the sick, we do it for each of you involved in the different ministries that come up through our church prayer points. Today when someone leads us in prayer, I hope 
Peter, it is, will include parish council. That was the plan for today, which reminds me of something from my reading that uh, on this very passage, when the famous Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon was commenting on that list of struggles Paul presented as his weaknesses, he said this, we have evils as numerous as these which Paul included in his famous catalogue of trials and one peril which he does not mention, namely the perils of church meetings, <laughs> which are probably worse than the perils of robbers. Spurgeon obviously didn't have a parish council as good and godly as ours. Well, what is the key to having strength in weakness? What is the God-given way to enduring challenges in ministry, in your health, in relationships, in your work, in your parenting? It's acknowledging your weakness and need and then praying to God that his power might rest on you. I hope you can remember to do that this week when you face whatever you will face rather than relying only on yourself and your resources. Let's pray.